Let's begin with a prayer together. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory together with thy Father, who is from everlasting and thine all-holy, good, and life-giving spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is in our Amen. So it's good to be back. <clears throat> you guys had an easy week last week. No class. You get to go home early. But you know what? It's a good experience to... There were many people during the last couple of years, especially during the COVID time, where they only saw services done by me and without a deacon, too. Like, who was it? Are there any of you in here? No. I mean, Carl, part of your time, Carl, when you saw me without a deacon, but then the deacon came back. But, uh, but it was more... more um, like, Yegor and Elizabeth and Sienna... Their, their group and you guys yeah for a long time yeah. and then a deacon shows up and it's like whoa he does a lot <laughs> you know I remember John oh John was a part of that John DeCaico was like father deacons really do a lot in the service yeah. like yeah they do so I loved being a deacon because I got to do all the liturgical parts and I didn't really have to say anything and believe it or not, I really actually just, I like, to like, I like to have the church do the talking. That's one of the things I like about liturgical worship. Um, so let me tell you a tiny bit about where I was. We have an Orthodox community out in Walla Walla. Has anyone ever been out to Walla Walla? Yeah. And interestingly enough, I, I got directions. I used my GPS to go to Walla Walla. And it would make sense to, to take 405 to I-90 down to, you know, Yakima and then shoot over to Walla Walla. But for some reason, my GPS took me down, down I-5 into Renton and then through Rainier National Forest. And it was beautiful. And for some reason, the way that the GPS calculated the timing, you know, they thought it would be shorter. I don't know, but it was really Beautiful. It was like a real, a real gift for me. Um, going over Snoqualmie Pass is really lovely too. But, uh, but why was I going to Walla Walla? So for a wedding, as you know. But way back when I was exploring orthodoxy, um, my wife and I, it's, this is a little part of a long story. And at some point I'll, I'll do, maybe, maybe in a few weeks I'll do my journey to orthodoxy for you guys. It's kind of nice to do with every group of inquirers and catechumens. But um, we had been exploring orthodoxy but weren't sure what to do. And I wasn't sure we were ready. So we had been invited to become a part of an international missions uh, organization. 
that focuses on ministering to, to youth and young adult counterculture. It's kind of my background, like, you know, street, street kids and alternative punk kind of culture. And they started this ministry as an outreach to, to punks and skinheads in Amsterdam. I mean, that's kind of a rough place. But these Christians went in and they started a band. They're like, let's start a band. You know, we can play like Christian punk music. And someone was listening to them and they were like, this is so bad, it's no, no longer music. And they were like, that's our name, no longer music. <laughs> so then they, so they started this ministry, you know, going out, ministering to the people, people on the street, um, youth and young adults, disenfranchised people, alienated or self-alienating people. You know, people have separated themselves from, from society. And actually, if you look at the origins of Christianity, uh, we can kind of relate to that, actually. You know, Christians, I, I like to call Christianity the, you know, the true radicalism. If you take orthodoxy um, as it really is, it's, it really is countercultural, especially compared to the way of the world. Um, and uh, it can be sanitized, and so, but it's not. I mean, it's not totally clean in that way. It's not something that just fits in. It's something transcendent and of its own. And I think it's the true radicalism. I feel more radical now as a priest than I ever did when I had my, you know, chain wallet and spike bracelet or whatever, you know, back in, back in the day, if you can imagine that. Um, but uh, anyway, so I was a part of this ministry when I was in college. I did a lot of st- street ministry and outreach. And I had taken... A, a group from my college to do to go st- do street ministry in Minneapolis during the summer, and uh, they they were interested in having us as a part of their international missions leadership team, and we had been sp- exploring Orthodoxy, my wife and I, after we graduated from college, but uh, but also just weren't sure. Like, should we? It's such a big shift. We're not sure where God's leading us. And around that time, a friend of mine who had become a part of this organization. Uh, invited us to come to their missions training school in New Zealand. So we went, hmm, okay, well, let's, uh, let's put our stuff in storage, quit our jobs, and see if this is what we're meant to do. Again, remember, we had been exploring orthodoxy deeply. Like, every book that I was reading was an orthodox book, and I even had an icon corner at that time. But we'd only visited an orthodox church once. So there's a, we weren't quite ready, though, you know, so we went to stop off in my in, at my in-laws place in Florida for a while do a little work raise some funds before we went to New Zealand and there I did I was still I was dabbling with orthodoxy so I checked out this church and it happened to be just down the street from where my wife's grandma needed to be dropped off it was like at her Catholic church for choir practice. So I would drop, I'll I'll take her. I'd get along with grandma. So I would take her down to her choir practice and then, and I would drive by this Orthodox church and it was on the same night they had a Vespers. So I would just pull into their parking lot and kind of look and go, I don't know. And then drive away (laughs) and go get grandma. And then we ended up going, I did that a few times while we were there for a month or so. Then I ended up going to New Zealand 
we were a part of this international missions training school, people from, from Brazil, Spain, Norway, Germany, all over the place. We rented, we rented a, a bunch of houses on the South Island of New Zealand. I mean, excuse me, at the South End of the North Island in New Zealand. And uh, because we were, we were off season, we were like late fall and it's a, kind of a summer home community. And uh, so we took over this town and uh, we're meeting and having teachings about missions and evangelism and the further we went into it, my wife and I were just like, we're not, we're not Protestants anymore. Whoa, this is weird. We just don't belong here. So we came to that conclusion together and I broke down in tears and it was one of the few times that I kind of feel like I had kind of the gift of tears. Like, I, it was a breakthrough I knew, and my wife had never seen me like that before, so she was like, this must be real because I've never seen you crying like this before, but just, we have to go back, and we have to become Orthodox. And so we told the leadership there, we've had a, cha a change of plans and we need to leave, and they even said, we think you can find what you're looking for here. And we said, I don't think we can. Because they would do the form of evangelism where you would go and convert, like reach people, convert them, but then there was nothing to leave them with, you know? And we needed the church. If we're going to do evangelism, we need the church as the foundation of that. And, uh, and we do need to be evangelical. But the, but the way I think primarily to evangelize people is interpersonally, you know, these days. And then most people are... It's Amazing accessing information on the internet too. So much information on the internet, and I just met in that family I was talking about. The guy has just been listening to Orthodox talks nonstop, and finally decided I need to become Orthodox. But anyway, we left New Zealand, went back to Florida, and instead of driving into the parking lot and sitting at the church thinking about going in, I called the priest. I said. My wife and I have decided we want to become Orthodox. We're in Florida right now visiting family on our way back home to Seattle. Can we talk? And he said, yeah, let me take you out for lunch. So I got, got together with Father Ted, was his name, short for Theodore. And uh, I remember one thing he told me. And I asked him, since I've seen him several times since that meeting, but do you remember what you told me? And he goes, I don't know. He said, I, I must warn you, orthodoxy is a last stop. Like, when you get there, you're not going any further. You're not going to another, it's not a segue to another denomination. Or it, it is the church. So, you just need to know that. And I was like, thank you. I'm so, like, I'm so tired of looking for Christianity and I just want to be a Christian, you know. I'm looking for the church I needed. So, so he met with me. This is all tying into my, this is my short version of the story of how I ended up at a wedding last Sunday. So, met Father Ted. I went to a Vespers when I was in town. And then we headed back home to Seattle, found an apartment, and we ended up living about a, a mile from here. We thought we were going to be in Seattle, but we ended up up here. And so we ended up here at St. Paul. And this is where we became Orthodox. 
in this community. And uh, I stayed in touch with Father Ted. So I said, I'm a catechumen now. And he said, great, congratulations, you know. We, we've become orthodox. Nice. And, uh, and then eventually when I was ordained and became a priest, I let him know. Wonderful. And I was able to go back and actually serve with him, you know, last year, which is pretty cool. But in the interim, I became the priest here, the, the, the full-time pastor here five years ago. And a couple years into that, when a young lady who was attending graduate school came during graduate school time, and I got to know her. Heard some confessions, and she came to church on Sunday. And uh, she, when she graduated, she told me that she was going on a cross-country bike ride. This was just, I don't know, a year or two ago, a year and a half? No, two, a couple years ago, maybe. But anyway, she's going on a bike ride across the country. And when she got close to Jacksonville, where that church is in Florida that I, where I met Father Ted, she said, where should I go in Jacksonville? Do you know anyone maybe that I might be able to stay with? Or where, you know, and where should I go to church? So I said, connect with this priest, go to this church. And so she did. And by God's providence, my, my family and I ended up being there the following weekend. We had a trip. There was no coordination there. But she happened to go one weekend. My family and I had a planned trip to go on vacation to Florida to see my in-laws. And so we went. I served liturgy with Father Ted for the first time as a priest, which was really amazing. Because who would have thought, you know, what was that, like 20 years ago that I talked to him or something. Um, and uh, during coffee hour, Father Ted and I are talking to this young man. Father Ted goes, hey, are you going to follow up with that young lady who was here last week? And I said, are you talking about Cecilia who came from my parish from Washington? And they're like, yeah. And the guy was like, well, I don't know. You know, kind of hemming and hawing. You know, it's like, and I guess she was in Florida. She was going to go see a rocket launch. And she invited some of the young adults. Want to come to the rocket launch? So Father Ted's like, you're going to go to the rocket launch with her? I don't know. And we were like, you don't know, but we do. You are going. <laughs> like a young lady like this doesn't walk into your life every day. Look at, she's right. She rode her bike across the country and went to church. You know, she could say, oh, I'm too tired from my bike ride or something like, I mean, she wanted to go to church. So anyway, she calls me up several months later and says, hi, father, I just want you to know, I want you to know that I met a guy when I went to that church. We stayed in touch and uh, we're engaged now. And I was like, is it? Who is it? And it turns out it was that guy that we were grilling. And so, um, and then a few months later, I think she, if I get the timeline right, she calls me and says, could you come and be a part of our wedding? And I was like, yeah. She, she goes, Father Ted from Florida is flying out to her home church in Walla Walla. Um, Father Jeremiah is coming from St. Paul, and then her, her parish priest was there too, Father Daniel. And so it was really cool. To, like, if we had not, if we hadn't become Orthodox, I mean, if I hadn't connected with Father Ted 
they would have never met. You know, it's just all, it's one of those things where it's, it becomes so obvious that our lives are so interwoven. So I got to go out there and I don't get asked to go places all the time. I like to be, I'm a homebody. I like to be here, you know, and my house four, four minutes away from here. Um, but uh, it was really special to be there. And, and then to see, to see him, to see this young man weeping when his uh, bride-to-be walked in the building. And, you know, one of my favorite things about serving weddings is in, in Orthodoxy, we're, at least I am, I mean, we're, we're more cued in with nonverbal communication. And I've talked to you guys about that. We use a lot of nonverbal communication. Um, and uh, especially during a wedding, when they're close to one another, they're looking at me or at the, the priest who's serving, but also they look at each other. And they couldn't, I noticed they couldn't look at each other for too long because they would both start crying every time they would do it. And actually, we all took turns giving them a little exhortation after the service. And I, um, and I made them look at each other. And when I did, they were both like, oh. <laughs> it, was, it was really beautiful. It was so sweet. So, um, so that's where I was. I, I don't travel a whole lot unless I have to go to like a conference or something. But um, that was, it felt like kind of a once in a lifetime thing. It was so special to see what God did there and that I got to be a part of it. One of the ways I, I talk about the Christian life is that we just get to be a part of what God's doing. I don't know if you've ever heard me say this. God is, the teaching of the church is that God is ever present. It's just that we're not ever present. We're not present. But the more we learn to, you know, admit, admit that, that I am here now and that God is present and there, there is no life apart from him, the more you find like the, the, come to the humble realization that you, you're just participating in the life of God. That in a way, there's almost like, it's almost like I'm not there. I mean, I am, but I don't even have life apart from it being, being spoken, being gifted, that life that God has given me. And it's, life becomes a privilege. It even becomes a privilege to struggle, you know. And, uh, and life, we've always, we've always had within us, I think, you know, the, the existential struggle of mankind is I, I want to live but what for what, am, what is this life for you know this that age old question and uh, you know by God's grace he's giving us that answer and the answer is always it always goes back to his love for us he loves us so much that he created us with the free will to enter into not only a relationship not just a relationship with God, but it's communion with God. And, uh, and then to participate in his very life. And despite us, but not without us, it feels like, um, to participate in his saving work. And so if you think about that, as you're, as you're learning to trust God day by day, it takes a huge mental shift. Because like we, we set out with our objectives, 
like I mentioned today, felt a little, I wasn't as, I was kind of scattered today maybe, but, um, but if we, if we release our grip a little bit on our expectations and our objectives, then we can see that we are, even in the mundane, participating in the very life of God. And then everything that you do is worth doing. If there's, if there's anything in your life that you, you cannot unite with your faith in God, then it's not worth doing. It's worth reevaluating at least and thinking about whether or not you need to uh, yeah, either look at it a different way, approach it a different way, or change it. You know? But uh, anyway, so this is one of those little witnesses. Like I just... I was just doing my thing, you know, carrying on as a priest. And I get excited when young people come to church, because especially college students, because college time is, a, is the time where people are exploring their independence and their identity. And a lot of times, especially if they're raised in the church, there's like a, a 60% rate across the board of young adults who just leave their faith when they go off to college. Because you go to college, I always tell people when they move too. It's just a, it's this phenomenon. You move away. You th- I've seen it happen. Oh, we're unpacking. We need to unpack this weekend. Well, yeah, we're still working. The following weekend comes around. We've been working, starting our new jobs. We need to rest a little bit, and we're still unpacking at home. And all it takes is three weeks. And you lose track of time. There's an, there's an early church canon, one of the writings of the early church that says, if someone, who, if someone has willfully avoided church for three weeks, they've, they've excommunicated themselves. And that word excommunicate, is, it sounds, when, when we use it, it sounds like a, you're cut off, you know, like an official um, legal decree or something. But it really just means they're not, they've separated themselves from being in communion. And then what happens? They just need to be, there's a, they need to come back and talk to the priest about what's been going on. You know, why? Why would you, if this is the most important thing in your life, you know, why would you go so long? But after three, three weeks becomes a month, a month becomes three months, three becomes six, and six becomes 12. I mean, you know, I it just, it's so easy to lose track of time in that way. And that, that happens to young people big time. Plus all of the, the influences if they go off to college. Um, we have a few, just a, a few orthodox colleges. We have one, one in uh, San Diego, St. Catherine College. We have one in uh, Houston called St. Constantine. That it's actually a, St. Constantine school is, I think, a, a K through 16 school. So you can go there as a kindergartner. You can come, go out of there, with, leave with a bachelor's degree. It's pretty cool. I'm like, can we start one of those in Washington? We need that in Washington. But, you know, they're being raised in the faith. Um, but it's taken some real pioneers and investors to a lot of, takes a lot of money and a lot of commitment and people sacrificing, you know, changing their, their life in order to do that. And then there's one in Boston run by the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, but anyway, so 
that being said, it was really, it's always impressive to me when college students come to Seattle. I mean, Seattle's a place where it's easy to, to lose yourself. Um, and, uh, and then they come to church, you know. It's really inspiring to me. So that's my little, my little story about where I was last weekend. I missed you all, but it's a good experience, too, to, to have the liturgy with another priest, to see what it's like. To even hear a different voice. You know, were all of you guys here for that? Yeah? No? Okay, some, most. Um, yeah. It's good, to, it's good to go to other churches and um, Orthodox churches and experience um, the, the sense that there is, there is diversity even in Orthodoxy. While the service is essentially the same, there are little differences between liturgical practices and personalities and things like that. So, anyway, well, let's get into our text for today. I saw some of you got copies. Do you, got it? Do you guys want, do you want to follow along? Does it matter to you? Anyone else? Does anyone want to follow along? Yeah? Can you tell us what page we're on? It's the, the chapter called, what is it? No, not the Holy Mountain. We did that last time. It's um, the, Lord's the Lord's Return. Yeah, what page is it? 251. 251, okay. Okay. And maybe this next time around, I'll finally um, get it right and start printing up a bunch of extra copies of this since, since the book isn't... Uh, in publication anymore. But I need to I need to find my copy on my computer here. Okay, the Lord's return. And this is like this this the Lord's return is a big is a big selling point in the at least in my past experience of Christianity, like, God's going to come back, and are you going to be ready? You know? You remember that? Like, you're going to be judged, and so heaven or hell. And I even remember going to, did you guys ever hear about Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames? Oh, yeah. That play, where all these different people, you know, you all these little skits about people at the end of their life, and they either get into heaven or they go to hell. And the, the goal of it is literally, we would say, to scare the hell out of you. Because <laughs> it's super scary. I mean, it's like, it's, and it's manipulative. Forgive me for saying it. I mean, there's, there's, there is a kind of a truth there, but it's so sensational. And um, even like the, the demon guys and the guy who played Satan, they were freaky. And, uh, and so if, some, if someone were to present that picture to you, like, you want to go... Um, have these white gates open up and have music. Ah! Or do you want these demons dragging you away with a guy going, ooh, poor little baby, you know. Um, which one would you like better? Uh, probably the, the angels singing one, you know. But, but the, the orthodox view of these things is, is, is a bit different and um, more refined maybe in a, in a way than... Um, than what people have been popularly exposed to. 
And there's a, there's a really, there's a good, a good book, actually. Um, there, there's some, because there's a lot of theological and even, I would say, psychological damage that has been done um, through different views of God's judgment and things like that. And the way it's been used to control and manipulate people and to influence people. And that needs to be healed. And, and I think the church can heal that with its teaching about God's love and how eternity is our willful acceptance or, reject, or rejection of God's love. And uh, actually, there's, there's a really good pamphlet that Father James wrote, the priest before me, called, it's called like Heaven and Hell, the Fire of God's Divine Love or something like that. Can you grab a copy, Daniel? And, um, and we could just show everyone, but it's one I highly recommend. That was my favorite. It's really good and it, it, it makes sense. It's like if I have to buy into Christianity and this is what it believes, then, oh, man, that's, it's like an unfortunate aspect of Christianity, the, the Western view of heaven and hell. The Orthodox view seems like a very healthy correction to that, that honors man's free will and, and reveals the reality of God's love rather than making it seem like God has a dual person, split personality right. somehow. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, heaven and hell, the fire of God's, the divine fire of God's love, written by Father James Bernstein. It's really helpful. And we might have more copies. I don't know how many are out there on the table, but I know people who have converted to orthodoxy just because of this teaching, because, because it reveals it's such a, a, a pure, beautiful teaching about God's love. And it brings to light in a very personal and reasonable even logical way um, the freedom that we have to like I said to accept or reject God's love and uh, so we the thing we fear would be separation from God's love not in each in it not eternal punishment per se that's what we should fear separation from love you know so anyway heaven and hell and then there's a book called, uh, because orthodoxy is very different than the prevailing view in the, in the United States, in the Western world, a lot of converts have written relevant books and teachings to kind of speak to, you know, Americans, to a Western audience who are interested in orthodoxy, but the paradigm shift is so significant. And we'll talk about, like, we don't believe in the rapture. The rapture is something new that was, that... Is not a traditional view. It's fairly um, well. It reared its head in early the early church, but it was put to to bed early on. But we'll get into that a little bit. But there's this all this stuff about the rapture. You know, have you heard of Left Behind? Yeah. The whole Left Behind series, and people got really into it. You know, yeah. The actor that played that part, Kirk Cameron. Yeah. He doesn't believe in that. <laughs> yeah, good. He's really into homeschooling too. I've, I've, he's been popping up here and there, Kirk Cameron. So I wonder if he'll become Orthodox eventually. Yeah, that's what happens. I mean, if if you take a lot of these things to their conclusion, it leads you to Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. It really does. So um, there's a that's funny. There's a book that we haven't even in the bookstore, um, and I might have a couple in my personal my little office library that um, that I could dole out, but 
a second look at the second coming, it's called. Um, and I think the author is Frazier, Terry T.L. Frazier. Yeah, um, I think we have it downstairs, and I have we have it in the library and in my little personal loan library in my office. But um, if any of you are particularly interested in in the study, like some people come from a real like almost rapture centric Protestant background. Like I talked to a young lady, and she was like, "I'm just really deeply connected with the rapture. Could I could I become Orthodox, but but still have that?" And it's like. No, you can't, because the church, the church actually doesn't believe in that. And, uh, but that, you know, she was like, oh. So it's interesting. We have, we have kind of a codependence with some, you know. <laughs> like the idea of being raptured is kind of a neat one, because it's like, I get pulled away from the earth before things get really bad. You know? Wow, you know, you want to be on that team. <laughs> um, but that's not what the, the church has taught from the beginning. And he wrote the intro, yeah, to a set. Father James wrote the introduction to that, that book, too. So, um, Father, is that pamphlet free to take? Yeah, so we have these. It's one of those. All of the pamphlets in the narthex are available for you. Like for, that's why they're there. Because we realize orthodoxy is not something that a bunch of people are exposed to. You know, I mean, it's, it's fairly foreign, and it's just, a, like I said, a huge paradigm shift for a lot of people. So that's why we have all those topical booklets. It's a good place to start. So, here, you want to take one? Yeah, you'll really appreciate it. I'll take one, and I'll keep a couple favorites, but I just bring them back, like, if I not, like, need to hold on to it. Yeah. As long as you don't get any ketchup on it or something, you know. <laughs> but also, I have, a, I have a stack that I've kept at home um, to share with people. Yeah. Like, if someone's interested in a particular one. So, yeah, I mean, you're welcome to... If, there's, if there are a couple that you read that you really like, and you want to share a little bit about your journey with your family, you could say, you know, I'm exploring orthodoxy. This really meant a lot to me. You might like this teaching. You can, you can kind of pay it forward to other people if you want. Um, it's, a, it's a ministry of the church, like, to provide, you know, this kind of information. Um, and it's kind of nice... There's so much information on the internet, but there's too much information on the internet. Not all of it's good. Um, and uh, we're tr- we try to put things out here that are, gen- that are generally good, you know. Um, and th- there are even orthodox voices that are kind of speaking under their own authority, for example. So be careful with internet orthodox personalities. The, the best thing to do is, and we talked about this like your first Sunday or, you know, and in our emails, um, the best thing is to connect locally. There's a lot you can, you can learn. There, there are a lot of good things out there, but be, just be careful. Because anyone, anyone in the world could have an Orthodox blog or podcast or YouTube page. I mean, I have a podcast so that shows how low the bar is. <laughs> but um, um, the reason I do the podcast is it's an easy way to post recordings for people who missed a service or something. But uh, we do have our homilies on a podcast, and now the catechism sessions are actually going on a in podcast format. I call it the Orthodox Faith. 
Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I was thinking, like, what would people... My, my podcast is kind of obscure, a form of acknowledgement, you know. It's a, um, but uh, anyway, that's available there, too, for you guys, if anyone ever wants to go back. And you kind of helped inspire me to do that. Yeah, it helps if, if you want to go back and re-listen to something or if you miss a session. It's mostly for that reason. But let's talk about the Lord's return. Our Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory, judging all men according to their deeds and establishing his kingdom, which shall have no end. What's the very last line of the creed? I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But we also say, who shall come again and judge all men? So judge the living and the dead. So we believe in a judgment, you know, and, um, and then in a kingdom that shall have no end. So the church of Christ lives between the two comings of Christ. When was the first coming? Hmm? The incarnation. Yeah. When he became man. We celebrate that on December 25th. Every year. And actually, if you want to be really technical about it, you could say we celebrate it on March 25th. What happens on March 25th? Yeah, we call it something else, though, in the church. Annunciation. Yeah, but you're right. That's what happened when Christ was conceived in the womb of Mary. So we celebrate exactly nine. We like to say this is kind of fun. Exactly nine months before nativity, we celebrate the Annunciation of, uh, of Mary. And uh, so really that's you know, when the first coming began. At, at, at his first advent, the eternal Son and Word of God became man, taking upon himself the sins of the world and destroying the power of death. At his second advent, and that word advent is a Latin word, but it just means arrival or coming, um, he shall come in his heavenly glory, ushering in the end of this age and inaugurating the life of the age to come. When our Lord ascended to his Father following his resurrection, Two angels appeared to his disciples as they stood watching. And I'm going to do a different Bible translation for a lot of these little quotes. Um, just so, if, so you know if you're following along. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So as he, as he went up, so also he will come down or return. That's from Acts 1.11. Since that time, the church has faithfully awaited the return of her Lord. The spirit of expectation pervades all that the church does. And we've already noted that chrismation is a pledge of our future inheritance. Um, St. Paul calls it an earnest, you know, of our, you know, of our inheritance, of, of our membership in the eternal kingdom of God. We also have pointed out that the Eucharist, which is what? What's the Eucharist? The body and blood of Christ. Another word for it is? Thanksgiving. Okay. What also, what do we refer to the Eucharist as as well? What are some other words? Holy mysteries. Holy mysteries. And someone else said? Communion. Yeah. I'm just getting you guys talking. What does he mean? Yeah. What, what answer does he want me to? At this, in that question, it's any of them. Holy communion. Ooh, there's one. There's a, there's a, there are two more that I can think of too. 
the mystical supper and the Lord's Supper, we call it too, anyway. But we're not playing, what is it, family feud here? (laughs) We have also, okay, so we've pointed out that the Eucharist is a participation in both Christ's first advent because he became man, so we took on the substance of creation so that we could encounter him. So that's, that's our participation in the incarnation, that he became man. And we'll talk about that deeply as we, about the incarnation as we start our cycle of catechism sessions again in a few weeks. But also in the, we call it the great wedding banquet of the kingdom of, to come. And we hear in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Even during the New Testament era, however, this expectation gave rise to strange speculations about the time and details of the Lord's return. Throughout the centuries, many have been led astray by these speculations, departing from the teaching of the apostles. This is especially true of our own time, in which prophecy experts peddle their ideas on television and in popular books. And so far, they haven't gotten it right. Everyone has tried to predict predict the end of the world or the Lord's return. They haven't gotten it right. Or they've reinterpreted their prophecy like, Oh, well, what I meant was in by this president being elected. It was, you know, I don't know, who knows? They should have been stoned. stoned? (laughs) Well, I know what you mean when you say that, so I won't judge you for it. It's a nice try. I know the, the way I put, yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I call it, I, I say this like in all generosity and in all charity um, and in all love. It, it, nice try. It's a nice try. Like it's a, they desire, like I said in the homily today, it's a desire for something. All of our mistakes are, are a desperate desire for something good, but a lot of times they're, they're well-intentioned and misled. And uh, so that's, again, the, the transformation that takes place. Yeah, it's true. They're still doing it. Yeah, exactly. It's like the people of Israel over and over again doing their own thing. You're right. So, um, anyway, there, so there, the shift that takes place when we discover not only the true belief, but the church and the way, you know, the church in the early days of Christianity was called the way because it is a way of life is that a healing of your person takes place it's not just about getting the theology right right belief it's about right life which translates to right being a healing of the person and when you get theology wrong it actually leads to like I said um, a, a psychological um, damage sometimes because you're looking, you're longing, you're clinging, you're desperately seeking answers, you know. You're, and then you, you, want your, you want to prove your hypothesis that it's going to be Y2K, you know, and the computers are going to go down and the Lord is going to take us and whatever it may be. Do you remember Y2K? <laughs> that was amazing. But so all of this hits close to home when it comes to theories and intrigue. And then people, of course, it's exciting, too. Yeah. 
It's exciting to get wrapped up in something. That's why those left behind books got so popular. Even people who didn't believe it read it because it was just kind of fun to read, you know. And then they made they made um, movies out of them, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. That's what you were talking about with Kirk. There's some philosopher that has a quote. It's like, every man in his heart of hearts wants to see the world end. And I think it's something about... See the world end. Yeah, it wants to, it's something about yeah. the desire for your troubles to be over with. Yeah. I don't know. But when I have a, I, I was getting ready. I was preparing a homily um, for the Feast of the, the Cross a few years ago. And I started thinking about... That's a really deep insight. I was thinking about the world's fixation on death, our relationship with death. We, we, we act as if we want to avoid it, but then we run to it as our solution. Like, we kill, we kill the unborn before they've had a chance to even, even had a chance at life outside of the womb. We put the elderly out of their misery, so to speak, and we call it an act of mercy. Um, and then also suicide is, you know, a, an incredible, a rampant tragedy. Now, now the assisted suicide is gaining traction. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it is in, in Canada. I mean, even with young people now can do it. I mean, it's heartbreaking. But, but what you're saying is, so it, and this is the, kind of the insight that I came to, is that we know that, we actually know that death is the only solution to our sinful existence. It's the only way out. But, but not a self-imposed one. That's where we got it wrong. And to say, you know, you want to say it beautifully and poetically, not in an overly simple, simplistic way. Just, and there, so Jesus dying on the cross. Is, but, but, the, but the death of God and our death to ourself, see? And our attempt at solving all of the problems is death is the solution, but the death which leads to resurrection, not death which just leads to hopefully an annihilation or escape of all of the pain and sorrow that we have. But death, even in a way to um, to the to the pursuit of pleasure that we have, which only leads to more pain. And uh, so that's an that's an incredible insight that deep within people just kind of do like want it to end but that's the existential struggle that I was talking about but we also want to live because we know that there's something within us that is constantly telling us that this life is worth living and that's why we feel like sometimes you maybe some of you have experienced depression where you feel like two persons in one body like this life I know that there's something good and beautiful but is it even possible and, uh, and then there's another part of me that just says, why try anymore? And, uh, and honestly, I think that's where the church comes in and brings the answer. But this fixation on things ending is, is a result of a deep psychological and spiritual longing for a solution. You're right. And so if, if we can't have it, then, we t- then at least we turn it into a form of entertainment. It's what we do in the West, you know. A kind of fetish, you could say. You know, we fetishize it. We can't have the real thing. And we've done that with the end of the world. So, 
It's necessary, therefore, because of all these different opinions and peddling and things that every Orthodox Christian understand the church is teaching concerning the second coming of Christ, and especially given our, our Western context where there are denominations built on these points of view. The first thing to remember is that there are very few things that the church states unambiguously concerning the Lord's return. Persons who claim to know intimate, do you know what that means, unambiguously? <laughs> there are very few things that we say like, with precision and clarity, and you'll see why. Um, it's basically because it hasn't happened yet, and we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. And it's not for us to know, but it is for us to be prepared. Persons who claim to know the intimate details of the Lord's return are deluded. And forgive me, I call it a well-intentioned delusion. Because again, it's a desire for, for an answer. It's a desire for a fix. It's a, you know, sometimes it's a nice try, sometimes it's not. It's a failed attempt, just an all-out failed attempt too. But it's significant that the book of Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse, is the only book of the New Testament that's not read during the church's services. Because it's not, it's not practical, really, and it lacks clarity and it requires interpretation. A lot of interpretation and a lot of the, the, the pastoral epistles the, you know, the, the, and the gospels. They're telling stories. They're, they're moral and ethical teachings with spiritual implications. But we can read, read them, hear them, and apply them to our lives. But the church has... While the, the book of Revelation is a part of the New Testament, it's not used in liturgical worship for that reason. It's there to be studied. It's there for our edification. And I'll talk to you about how you might approach reading it, but also tell you don't worry about diving into it you know, right away either. Um, the fathers of the church, you know, the, the fathers, the teachers of the church, Realize that the, that Revelation is a very difficult book, and one that's easily misinterpreted. Anyone wishing to know more about the Book of Revelation could begin. He says should, but with the excellent commentary by the late Archbishop of Verki, called the Apocalypse in the Teaching of Ancient Christianity. But there's also now a collection by Father Athanasius. Um, Mytilinaios, which we have, it's five volumes on the book of Revelation. Did you buy those? Not yet, but no? I, that book of Revelation is my favorite <laughs> book. It's your favorite book? Yes. Interesting. I have a few of the books, I need to get more. Okay, so the, the, there's a, a big set. And they within the last year, I think, they finally just translated and published in English, the last volume of this book. So um, we have them down in the bookstore now. Yeah, we have all of them. Yeah, yeah, they're down there. They take up like a whole shelf. They're blue. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, and that would be a pretty safe place. I mean, you could start with volume one and just kind of work your way through. But um, let us therefore consider what the church affirms confirming, confirming the second coming of Christ and leave aside those things that our Lord and his apostles passed over in silence. And if you're, as a little kind of a, I don't know, caveat, if, if you don't have much background with this, or if you're kind of new to Christianity, then this teaching probably isn't going to mean much to you right now. 
other than maybe some rumblings and things you've heard through popular culture here and there. But, um, but with more experience, more scripture reading, it'll eventually find its place in your, in your thought life and, and in your understanding. But if you don't have that background, then you may, you may have, there, there may be less to kind of correct and heal within your own mind, you know. It's interesting, sometimes people who have very little to no experience with Christianity take to orthodoxy in a different way than people who have a lot of baggage from their previous beliefs. I thought we believed, no, oh yeah, that's another heresy, you know, or that's, <laughs> oh, that's a nice try, or, you know. So, yeah. No. No, the time of the hour yeah. that this will take place. And then he told them the, the, the um, how he always gave his descriptions of the fig tree. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how the fig tree? Did, yeah, the, the, he went over and he tried to explain to, that, to his apostles about mm-hmm. the fig tree when they use the righteousness. So they, a lot, of people, a lot of different religions take that and try to expand it. But... It always comes back to my mind. If not, if not even the angels in heaven, you know, I mean, yeah. Really? Well, they. Well, here's another thing, though. It's like to go with that. It's like some catastrophic catastrophic event happens in the world. Oh, it means the Lord's coming. It's like, well, you know what? Every every day is a day closer than to the end. I mean, so. But you don't. That doesn't mean you know when it's going to be. I don't. Like, okay, things are getting worse. And if, if there is an end to all things, so to speak, it's going to happen. And logically speaking, every day that we live is a day closer to that. So you shouldn't be surprised, you know. But again, it's that, it's the, it's that fixation on wanting to get it right. And also it is a way, it is a tactic whether they realize it or not. It's a, it's a tactic for getting people's attention and commitment to their religion too. See, we know something. We figure something out that other people don't know. Secret. It's a form of Gnosticism. It is. Just, and people are drawn to that because we want to know. And, uh, you know, orthodoxy heals that by saying, well, you can know to a certain extent, but there's a lot more you can't know. And then be patient and wait. And, you know, when God wants you to know, then he'll let you know. And that's not just with regard to the end of all things, but with a lot of things in life in general. So, okay, where was I? So we're going to, let's, I'll just pick up where I think around where I was. Let's consider what the church affirms concerning the second coming. Um, The second coming of Christ and leave aside those things that our Lord and his apostles passed over in silence. Yeah. First of all, the church affirms that Christ will physically return in glory, although we cannot know the day or the hour. Secondly, when our Lord returns, he will judge every man according to his works. Finally, the church confesses that Christ's kingdom shall have no end. Concerning his return in glory, our Lord warned, 
and I have another translation here. Our Lord warned, but of that day and hour no one knows, and this is what you were talking about, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. How vain it is then for us to speculate on the time of Christ's second coming. Unfortunately, many have made careers out of doing just that. The, the Christians in Thessalonica were making predictions about Christ's return when St. Paul rebuked them. So this was happening already. And if you if studied New Testament and New Testament theology at all, you'll, you'll discover that like, one of the themes in the early church was that they thought he's, he was going to return in their lifetime. That's why they were living with such a sense of urgency. So St. Paul is correcting the Thessalonians, and he says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless... The falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. So the one who exalts, it sounds like each and every one of us, you know, exalts himself over above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And we'll talk about Antichrist too. According to St. Paul, Two events will precede the second coming. First of all, a general falling away or apostasy from the truth. Maybe it'll be a, a priest there to serve the liturgy, but no one there to celebrate with him. You know? And when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? We hear in Luke 18. Mankind will become more sinful as the end of the age approaches, and many will leave the church to follow their own desires. And so those who, those who are uniting themselves to Christ will have to be more intimately bound, you know. Um, and to be a Christian will be to be more radical because, as you know in the teaching of the church, it's not the fulfillment of our own desires, but automatic suspicion of what it is that I want and why I want it. Not my will, but thy will be done is what we're seeking to understand. Because we understand that pleasure isn't what brings us fulfillment. Love is love. And it's not that oxymoronic word that, that the fathers of the church use, self-love. There is no such thing as self-love. True love. The second event is the revelation of Antichrist. The word Antichrist literally means instead of Christ. The Antichrist will not present himself as an ugly, malevolent being, but as a caring Savior. And will promise you that you can get what you want. You can have your cake and eat it too. He and his minions will perform miracles and solve great social problems, winning the allegiance of many Christians. We read in Matthew 24. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, hmm, you know, so what do all the prophets say? Well, yeah, everyone else is a false prophet, but not me. Hmm. Only after he's won the allegiance of the world will the Antichrist reveal his true self and the period of great tribulation shall begin. And we read it again in Matthew then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. 
no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days would be, will be shortened. And it's kind of like what you were saying. They want to, you know, those life, we, people would be drawn to despair. They would, they, they would say that this maybe become convinced that life isn't worth living anymore, you know. Um, if, our, if our life went on maybe 120 years, we couldn't handle it. We can barely make it to, you know, 80 or 90. If there's a teaching, there is a teaching popular among evangelical Protestants that asserts that Christians will be miraculously delivered from the tribulation and that only the, quote, unsaved will suffer under the rule of Antichrist. The idea that Christians will be raptured, that is, taken up into heaven before the tribulation, is an invention of the 19th century. That, and no one, well, so he says no one in the previous 1800 years of church history ever came up with such a notion. Um, but, actually, um, when the Second Ecumenical Council met in 381, in condemning all the errors of the heretic Apollinarios, um, can, can they condemned also his teaching of the thousand-year reign of Christ and introduced into the very symbol of the faith, the creed, the words concerning Christ, and his kingdom will have no end. Because if he were to come and rapture people and go away and then come again, there would be three comings, and that's not biblical even. His kingdom will have no end, and it no longer became permissible at all for an Orthodox Christian to hold these opinions. So it was the idea of a th- this thousand-year reign was addressed in the early church in the fourth century. Our, our Lord made it perfectly clear that the period of tribulation will be shortened precisely for the sake of the elect. And that's why we are told to watch and stand fast in the faith so that we will not be deceived. If it seems too good to be true, than it probably is. It's no accident that the, quote, rapture is often paired with an idea of a worldwide revival before the second coming. Thus, many Christians are expecting a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit with great miracles and mass conversions before the church is taken up to heaven. We know from the divine scriptures, however, that this is the exact opposite of what will happen. There will, of course, be a great revival complete with signs and wonders. All of you, this is the great revival. This room right here, we're the, we're it. We've, we've achieved it. Okay, the end of the world is tomorrow. No, say your prayers tonight. But this will be the deception of Antichrist. It's when people, and you know, it, it, it's almost always when people start feeling special. Forgive me. But it's, we want to feel special. We want to feel unique and useful. And church leaders are totally susceptible to that kind of delusion. God really is using me. And we're making a lot of money at it too. You know what I mean? Like it's interesting, the mixing of motives. And how successful it is. Um, what, a, what a great um, industry it has become. So those who are expecting to be delivered before the advent of Antichrist will be ill-prepared to recognize him. It's obvious that Satan himself is the author of the rapture myth. It's a part of the Antichrist campaign of deception. And it is. It's a form, it's kind of a, it's a kind of spiritual hedonism. Like we want, we want, we get what we want. We get pleasure. You know, we get to escape all the difficulties. But it's not true. 
Um, life is kind of already difficult every day, you know. I mean, we're... Um, and so it, that is an easy sell. I always tell people, like, you, you become Orthodox and then Father's going to tell you to fast and pray and do prostrations and come to church as often as possible and, you know, the spiritual struggle and to struggle and to struggle a little bit more. And, uh, you know, asceticism, this, the life of spiritual struggle is kind of a hard sell. But telling people that they get to get out of trouble, that's an easier sell. Our, tasks, uh, our task as Orthodox Christians is not trying to predict the future, but to watch and pray. We're to be the, as the wise virgins in the parable who had their lamps filled with oil in expectation of the bridegroom's call. We must be prepared for when our Lord appears. We shall stand before his throne of judgment and give an account of our lives. The second major point is that, that the church affirms about the second coming of Christ is that he's coming to render final judgment. Everyone who has ever lived will come before him. We read in Romans 2, 6 through 10. It says, Who will render, speaking of God, who will render to each according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, true glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and of also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is another false teaching popular among evangelical Protestants that says that Christians will be exempt from this judgment. Do not be led astray by such nonsense. All of us will be called before Christ to give an account of our lives. And that's why at every liturgy we pray for a Christian ending to our life, painless, unashamed, peaceful, and for a good defense before the dread judgment seat of Christ. And uh, I sometimes when I talk about um, the, last, the last judgment, someone... Someone actually mentioned something to me this today that reminded me of it. You know, we, we, we don't just repent once, but we live a life of repentance. A young man I was talking to, he said, he said, uh, orthodoxy is, is a lived repentance. And that's true. It's an ongoing... Because repentance kind of has two, two implications. One is turning away from sin... You know, getting the bad out with, out with the bad, in with the good. So turning away from our sinful, selfish desires, and then turning toward God. And if we are living the the Christian life sincerely, day to day, then in a way, every day we should live every day as if it is a kind of judgment. Every day I, I'm confronted with the reality of being called to account before God. And I, if you believe that God is love and truth and you want to live a life in accordance with that truth, 
you want, you actually come to want that judgment to take place. Because when that light hits you, it reveals what's there. It reveals what's good, and it reveals what's bad. And our judgment is, ultimately, it's going to be on, dependent on whether or not we want to keep the bad, so to speak. The things that would separate us from God and one another. And if we desire to be cleansed of that, then, 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 then we, can, we will be able to freely enter into the presence of God. But St. Paul is not saying merely if, if you got it all right, then you get to get into heaven. Good for you. But there are a lot of people who you know, were just screw-ups, and so whether they like it or not, they're going to be condemned. There's always the element that the church brings in of, the, of our free will in our understanding of the judgment of God. But we do try to live day to day as a constant conversion with that sense of the, the imminent return of the Lord because honestly, we have the, if we have the Holy Spirit, then we're encountering God. I mean, if, we, if we're participating in the liturgy, we're encountering God Himself. We're blind to it. You know, we get little, little glimpses of it, but we hope, we hope that the foggy lens, the cataracts of our souls, you know, will be removed. But the only, the only way that that can happen is, is if we're willing to be utterly revealed, laid bare by God, seen by God, seen to, to encounter the light of God without being de- destroyed, you know, by the perfect love. And that's also why he gives us days of working out our repentance. Because uh, we're not, we're not, all, not all of us are ready for that encounter. You know, we need to pre- prepare. We need to be preparing ourselves for an encounter with the truth. Was there was an old movie, the truth? You can't handle the truth. What was that? I don't know. <laughs> Jerry Maguire. I never saw that movie, but I saw that clip. <laughs> you can't handle the truth, and that's kind of like that's how we, how it is. You know, we're learning how to handle the truth. Because it not only, again, is it in my, is a shift in our mindset, but it's in our whole being, our disposition, and our understanding of who God, who God is, and what it is for a creature to encounter the uncreated God, seemingly impossible. Well, it's like prolific individualism where everybody has their own truth and it's relative. Yeah. Is quite a culture. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And there's a lot, yeah. There's a lot of healing that needs to take place, you know, in our self-perception in that regard. And it is, it's like a shattering of our identity when we start to come to terms with that. But then you kind of want, you start wanting that. This is the kind of the the day-to-day intermediate judgment of like living out of repentance. You start wanting that false identity to be shattered. Fine, like bring me down to. Bring it down to the studs and start building it up again. Whatever it takes. I don't care. Bring it down to where there's only one pebble left and then start, use that as the, you know, whatever it takes to rebuild me, Lord, you know. We know that that God desires our salvation. 
and for those who are, who, who are willing to be shaped and formed by him. He's the, he can make something better, far better than, than we could ever come up with. Out of the stuff that we are. It's amazing. You know, the fathers use the image of, of wax and clay in this regard. And a lot of times you hear the image of a potter of shaping a vessel. And we're supposed to be like a, a vessel that can be shaped by God. And that's a good uh, image. But, but there's also another one that when you expose clay to heat, it hardens. When you ex- expose wax to heat, it softens and it becomes malleable. And one of the questions for us is, as we encounter God's love and his truth, God himself, who is love, who is truth, are we going to be like the clay that hardens in our ways and resists it? And like you were saying, with the rampant individualism, I don't have to change. I can just be, I can do, I can do me. You do you. You know, I can be me whatever I want to do. And... We, we all have the right to do that, absolutely. But it leaves us sorely disappointed and, you know, sad in that place, that depressed state that we were at to be at the very beginning of this whole endeavor. So there's, not, there's another false teacher. Okay, I already said that. Um, we'll all be called to give an account. And really what it comes down to is that we will, we will encounter God. We will. Um, and we call that encounter with life, with light, with truth, with God. It's a, it is a judgment because ju- a judgment is the revealing of the person. Not because, because God is sitting there with a gavel ready to look at all the mistakes that we've made and compare it to the list of all the good things that we've done and weigh it on a scale. That's not the kind of judgment that we're talking about here. We're talking about being revealed. And we should long to be revealed. We should long to be seen in this way and to be purified, cleansed, and transparent to God. So when Christ returns, the dead shall rise, the books shall be opened, and men shall be sent to their eternal destinies. The righteous shall reign together with Christ in his kingdom, a kingdom that shall have no end. This is the third point that the church affirms concerning Christ's second coming. In the early church, a heresy arose concerning the nature of Christ's kingdom, misinterpreting the statement in Revelation, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, Revelation 24. Many began to teach that Christ would rule an earthly kingdom for 1,000 years before the final consummation of the age. And um, this, this uh, heresy is called... Chiliasm from the Greek word chiliasmos, which means a thousand. It's also called millennialism, for those of you who are into end times stuff in the past. So this teaching was condemned as a heresy by the Second Ecumenical Council, and the phrase, whose kingdom shall have no end, was added to the creed. So God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. The millennial reign of Christ is the seventh day. This is the age of the church. We who have been, baptized, been united with Christ in baptism and anointed with the Holy Spirit live and reign with him here and now. So this is, this is that time, and it's not a literal thousand years. Obviously, because it's been more than a thousand years since Christ was 
on earth. But it's a figurative way of speaking of a, a span of time. The book of Revelation speaks of two deaths and two resurrections. The first death is our physical death. The second death is the eternal death of hell. And the first resurrection is our spiritual resurrection accomplished at baptism. And the second resurrection is the general resurrection of all the dead. St. John writes, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Those who experience the first resurrection will die physically, but they will be raised again to live an eternal life with God. Has anyone heard that saying that's over the door of, of, or the entryway into a, one of the monasteries of Mount Athos? If you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. <laughs> you know? So if you, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. Um, I interrupted myself. Okay, those who have no part in the first resurrection will be raised again only to undergo the second death, which is hell. We live in the seventh day, so to speak, but when Christ returns, a new day will dawn, not the first day of a new cycle, but the eighth and final day. So a day without end, you could say. Yeah, a day that has no end. And creation, as we know, will be transformed. All will be trans, trans, transfigured by the power of Christ's resurrection and the divine life of the All-Holy Trinity. There shall be a new heaven and a new earth, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, for the former things are passed away. So let's read a couple of the quotes from the fathers, and let's see, what, how are we doing time-wise? Oh, we're almost at the end here. I talked a little too long about my wedding. St. Basil the Great, talking on the Psalms, says, Blessed is the man who in the day of God's just judgment, when the Lord comes to throw light on the hidden things of the darkness and to reveal the intention of, of men's hearts, submits boldly to that testing light. Submits. See, this is what I was talking about. So blessed is the one who submits boldly to that testing light. I often refer to repentance as a courageous Repentance. And when I was talking about confession, even, and I said, you know, I, I hear you guys, and you sin a lot, you know, and, and, and everyone laughed about that. Um, I should have also said, I was thinking about it afterward, I should have also said, but I, I deeply respect the courage of everyone who's coming to talk about what it is, how they, about their misappropriated desires, you know, and to explore how, how to truly use it. Because God, again, these are God-given faculties that we have to turn toward Him, to, to love Him and to love others more, and to explore how am I misusing this? What am I doing wrong? And how can I use it correctly? How can I be who I was created to be? Rather than just escaping your identity, allowing it to be transformed by God, by His love, through His radical humility and by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So, but we have to submit boldly to that 
light of God and then comes out unashamed because his conscience is unpolluted by evil actions. While those who have acted wickedly will rise to reproach and shame for they will see in themselves their disgrace and the the marks of their sins for they will have always before their eyes the evidence of their sins committed in the flesh like some indelible stain by choice which will endure in the memory of their souls for all eternity. And then we have um, from, from the hymns of Great Lent, from the probably Sunday of the Last Judgment. How shall it be in that hour and fearful day when the judge shall sit on his dread throne? And it is a fearful thing. It is an awesome but also fearful thing. It's because it is real. The books shall be opened and men's actions shall be examined and the secrets of darkness shall be made public. Come ye and hearken, kings and princes, slaves and free, sinners and righteous, rich and poor, everyone. The, the playing field has been leveled, for the judge comes to pass sentence on the whole inhabited earth. And who shall bear to stand before his face in the presence of the angels, as they call us to account of our actions and our thoughts, whether by night or by day? How shall it be then in that hour? But before the end is here, make haste, O my soul, and cry, O God, who only art compassionate, turn me back and save me. Okay, so we're not going to get to get into heaven and hell today. But if you if you do want to grab this pamphlet on heaven and hell, the fire of God's divine love, um, there are some out there, and if there if there aren't enough, there are more downstairs in our um, overstock. And I can grab some more for you guys if you're interested in that. But we will talk. We'll just have to get into heaven and hell next time. And this, this section that we're going to do here is fairly abbreviated. Um, this is little pamphlets going to have more information in O'Fuller. And then um, if we have time, we'll talk about living an Orthodox life in a secular world. Basically, okay, we've talked, we've been talking about orthodoxy we've been coming to church but how do we carry that forward into the rest of our life too i mean i call it connecting the dots you know we kind of we live our life kind of like you know dot dot here at work and a dot here at church and a dot here at home and do do and the idea is if if i'm a whole person you know if i'm a person living with integrity and not just not just a hearer but a doer of the Word of God, then I'm going to carry that. That I'm going to be. I am who I am, wherever I am. I need to come to terms with that and figure out what that means for me too. You know, does it mean I have to have an icon corner at the dog salon? Probably not. But it means that I'm going to. But, but I. But I am going to take my identity as a Christian very seriously. There, you know what I mean. Um, and uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about that a little bit more, connecting the dots. So, um, it's just about two o'clock. So let's stop there for today. And again, if you want a copy of this, let me know or grab grab one in the narthex. And if we need more, I can get more. And then feel free to take a look at this if you're interested in this topic. A second look at the second coming. But the life of repentance. I'll just end with this: the life of repentance in the church. It really is, it's, it's a preparation for this. Like people who are familiar with coming to confession and becoming vulnerable 
in a safe place, opening up your heart and healing, not getting further wounded, which, which is what the world seems to do to us oftentimes. We open our hearts and it wounds us even more. It takes advantage of us. And that's not the, what's happening here in the healing experience of confession, is that we're, we're learning that we can be, um, render ourselves vulnerable to God and be seen as we are, even in our imperfections, and then we can begin to heal. Um, and, and then when that healing is taking place, and when that exposure, that stepping into the light takes place, it actually is just preparing us to not be surprised when we encounter God in that day. If it's when I, if, if I depart tonight and I go see him, or if he returns tomorrow when I'm confronted with the uncreated reality of God. Hopefully, I will be prepared and the church is preparing us for this constantly th- through the life of repentance that we're living. So let's, uh, let's stand up and say a little prayer together. And I'll let you go. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Christ our God, who at all times and in every hour in heaven and on earth art worshipped and glorified, who art long-suffering, merciful, and compassionate, who lovest the just and showest mercy upon the sinner, who callest all the salvation through the promise of blessings to come. O Lord, in this hour receive our supplications and direct our lives according to thy commandments. Sanctify our souls, hallow our bodies, correct our thoughts, cleanse our minds, deliver us from all tribulation, evil, and distress. Encompass us with thy holy angels that guided and guarded by them. We may attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of thine unapproachable glory. Thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. God bless you all. Go in peace. I look forward to seeing you, God willing, this week, maybe during some of the services this week. And if not, then this coming weekend.